What do you think? Could the most recognizable pool player on the planet, a world champion, ranked number one, known as the Black Widow, disguise herself and hustle a guy out of all the money in his pocket? Jeanette Lee got a phone call one day from the great Rick Riley of Sports Illustrated, who wrote a back-page column called The Life of Riley. He asked her that very question. He had asked me, have you ever, do you think you could hustle now? I'm like, no, you know, everybody would recognize me. And he was like, but what, you know, what if we changed everything, changed the way you look? And I said, oh no, then yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to be, I don't get any, it's like a bully picking on the little kid. It doesn't do anything for me. He was like, no, we should do it. We should do an article. And so he flew into Indianapolis where we live. We, um, George made some calls, my ex had made some calls and we picked a Mark who was coming out of a, a bar across town. And we had Rick be like my pimp daddy. And you know, he had like a, a wife beater shirt and a Navy bowling hat and you know, God knows what. And and I had put on a, a black, you know, a, I mean, a, like an auburn red wig and glasses and like skin tight like one piece denim with my Newport cigarettes and my, you know, spurn off ice. And we hustled a guy to eventually um, lose all the money in his pocket, which was about $700. And eventually we gave it back after the story. And it was, it was great, but it was one of his pieces. I love that. The Black Widow spins her web in disguise and then gives the Mark his 700 bucks back. But how did the shy daughter of Korean immigrants who had a severely curved spine, was bullied, transform into the Black Widow? It goes to this episode's title, True Grit. Jeanette Lee embodies it. The courage, resilience, relentless drive. Coming up, she tells a story of pain tolerance that's up there with anything I've heard in 35 years covering athletes in all sorts of sports. But each and every day, Jeanette gets by on grit and toughness. My other guest, Jay Billis, ESPN's lead college basketball analyst and an attorney, has studied toughness and wrote a bestseller on it, drawing from examples of the toughest people he's known from all backgrounds. You talk about a positive influence that what, you know, what in my life is so difficult and such an obstacle that I can't deal with it with the positive attitude that a young woman with a geoblastoma had. Like, I can't match that attitude with the tiny little molehill obstacles I have when she had that to scale. Uh, that, that was another one for me just in writing the book that I said, man, um, I, I, I may think I've, I've got a little bit of toughness in me, but it's not close to Sabrina Lewandowski. Later, Jay offers valuable ideas on developing mental toughness. But first, Jeanette Lee and her empowering example. It's a unique journey. At age 12, the course of her life changed when she developed scoliosis, a sideways curvature of the spine. Jeanette's case was severe and debilitating. Two 18-inch metal rods were implanted in her back. She says it was excruciating physically and emotionally. Something that is not known to be a lethal disease, but it is something that really affects your life um not just in the way that you look which you know a lot of it happens more girls than boys um you discovered a lot of times in your early teens or just in your early childhood development and and to then see that and be at for me it was when i was like 12 so you're just starting to like boys and just starting to form your own identity and you know start worrying more about what you look like. And, and for me, actually, in New York, being born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, it was an all-Black neighborhood. And so I was the minority, and I was the one, Ching Chong, Charlie Wong, and all this stuff, you know, going to school. And so I already felt very much like an outcast. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so then now, I, you know, having to have this major spinal fusion and where this giant cast and then for the next year, this big plastic brace. And um, it was it, it was definitely the worst time of my life to that point. And those are some serious challenges. You talked about yeah. 
feeling racism as a kid, being bullied, yeah. feeling different, yeah. not to mention dealing with a whole lot of pain. And I'm sure experts telling you, you're not going to be able to do this. It became about what you can't do, your limitations right. and not what you can do. So what got you through that? I remember back then, um, I'm a Christian. My whole family was raised as Christians. And my, my mom has always been a devout Christian. And I remember her saying to me, when I was laid up in bed, you know, after surgery and being miserable and feeling like the world is so unfair and why is this happening to me? And her saying, let us pray. And her saying, well, God has a, a great plan for you. And like any teenager, I would go, shut up, mom. You don't understand. You, you don't know what it's like. And, and she just kept saying that sometimes we may not understand why something happens, but that God has a greater plan, right? And so I wasn't buying into that. It was just life stinks, everything's unfair. And then later I continued on um, and she always said you have gifts and you have to be open to discovering what that is. And you can't do it feeling sorry for yourself on your couch. You need to go out, get off the TV, get out there like, you know, and go out and do things and try things and always just be open. You've talked about just the way that the universe guided you or whether it was divine, whatever your belief, to, to find pool because it wasn't right. just the scoliosis. You were going through some troubled times in your teenage years and lo yeah. and behold, boom, here's this sport. It wouldn't be the first thing you'd expect a girl from Brooklyn to run into. No, and and no, now you sent you, what was that kind of light bulb moment when you realized this is something for me and this could really be important? I remember when I was younger, I was a bit of a tomboy. I loved being active. I loved playing ball um, with the kids. And I'm talking about in elementary school. So in my, and then eventually because of what I was saying, the racism, the bullying, some of the other things, my mom transferred me to a private school in the city, which she, she regrets to this day. It was in Greenwich Village. You know, and so in the private school, it's it's great in some ways, but you have access to a lot more things that can get you in trouble. And I was being a bit of a teenage delinquent and being rebellious and things like that. And after after scoliosis, my spinal fusion, I could no longer run, be the tomboy. I had to be way less active. And they kept saying, you know, within a couple of years, you should be fine. Um, well, they would say in six to nine months and then a year and then two years. And then they were like, no, you probably just should expect that, you know, this is quite possibly the best that you're going to get. Jeanette was forced to accept that playing all the sports that she loved would now be impossible. Eventually, her high school boyfriend took her to play pool. The Color of Money, starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, had made pool cool again. New billiards rooms are opening up all over New York. So one night when she was 18, Jeanette walked into a pool room near where she worked and laid eyes on a stranger who would completely change the course of her life. And so I'm in there and I remember all this noise and things going on. And in the far back corner of the room, there was an older gentleman playing by himself. And he was... I. It was almost like you're in a in a movie, Twilight Zone, and everything blacks out, and you're like zoom, focused on this one table. And I could almost, I almost felt like my breathing was in sync with his. And he was just, it was like he made the cue ball dance. I mean, he was just so graceful, and he made everything look so easy. And I just, God, this is just beautiful. And then, um, so I started going there more often. There were more and more players that were really, really good. But I remember that first night that I saw him, I, I was looking, I was analyzing and looking at his stance. And I remember making my hand in the shape of a bridge. And I just kept practicing because it feels so like uncomfortable. And I did that. And I don't remember how long I sat there because I, I would imagine somewhere between 15 and 18 hours and it was a 24-hour place but there were at one time 15 to 18 hours straight in there oh yeah but and that was normal but that was my first time that was the first time wow. that I just fell in love with what I was seeing 
And so it, it really did become an exception, um, an obsession. But I think that anytime you see someone really good at what they do, it's, it's mesmerizing. That is a vivid picture that you painted that the, kind of the heyday of pool, the, the glamor days, thanks yeah. to the hustler. And, and so this mix of people, the Wall Street guys full of bravado and pockets yeah. full of cash. Yeah. The the pool hustlers who who wanted that cash and they were they were playing their own games. I mean, and how did you fit in and what did they make of you when you walked into that room? As I said, there weren't a lot of women playing pool seriously, right? So eventually I did stand out because I was I became that was my second home. That became my second home. I was there all the time. I would say most of the time I mean, I would say that I feel like the hustle that I did was just me being a woman because, I mean, I was always very competitive, so they could see my game. I feel like they could see my general game, but just because I was a woman, maybe they had some blinders on where they didn't really equate whether they could beat me well, because most of the times it really didn't it didn't take effort or lying so much. It was that I could see their game for what it was. And I feel like time and time and time again, I was underestimated and I reaped the reward of that. And so, yeah, I would say that. And and the regular hustlers didn't really pick on me. If anything, they would make a deal. Listen, I've been, feeding off this fish every Friday for the last blah, 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 blah. She's only good for, you know, $50 a set and blah, 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 blah. If you want to go in there, then you can, you know. That's what the mark was called. The fish was what the, uh, was what the hustlers called the mark again. (laughs) Yeah. Usually fish, you know. You pretty quickly had some incredible success and became one of the most recognizable players. Once you reach that, there's no way you're going to hustle somebody. They're going to be, they're going to be looking out for you. I mean, they're going to say, you know, beware of the black widow. I mean, when, when you had this success and you're in your early twenties and this is a thing it's yeah. supposed to take years and years to hone skills, to deal with the pressure yeah. of, co- of tournament pool and, and being able to understand how different it is when there's a title and the money on the line versus being practicing in the back room. I mean, did this success catch yourself off guard? You're not supposed to win the, the women's nationals and the u.s open nine ball at the age you were not only were you female you're so young in the game is this what did you just act like hey i expected this this is what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to win no because no matter i mean i i will say that um i think i turned pro in three years and after a year and a half of becoming pro i became number one so it was super But that's bad. crazy. Uh, Jeanette, that, everybody, like- a million people must have told you that's just not supposed to happen. That's just crazy. Right. Put, put in perspective yeah. for folks how unusual that is to skyrocket that quickly in your sport. Yeah, I still haven't met anyone that has attained anything like that in my lifetime, let alone before that. You go from being, here's this new sensation. Wow, this is going to be good for the sport of pool. We've got a new star to now you're on top. And all the stuff that comes with that. Now you're a target. You're the yeah. one to beat. It's natural in a sport that jealousy and resentment are part yes. of that because you're achieving Absolutely. things that are beyond just the success in the tournaments. You're obviously getting noticed. You're getting endorsements. How was the climate and, and what kinds of things did you have to deal with there? You, you find this sport to get you out of being an outcast, and being bullied. And now there's the pressure of being at the top and there's all people who want to take a run at you there. It was that there was some jealousy. I think that a lot of people didn't think that I earned the attention I was getting. And I did stand out because I was the only minority. Or actually, there was Vivian Valeriel, who was Latino, but it was otherwise fully Caucasian, you know, all the players. And uh, me being from New York, dressing in all black, which for a New Yorker is very normal. But um, I just really stood out. And so getting all that attention and I felt very alone. I remember my first title, the first time I won a major. Um, After I won, I mean, everyone cleared out and I went into the restaurant attached to that club and and everybody was sitting down and eating and not one person congratulated me or asked me to join them at their table. And I, I went to my hotel room and cried. And that was my first major win. 
So it was, um, it was very, very lonely at the top because of how I started. Whenever I play in tournaments, I make a point to go out of my way to any players I don't recognize that are new and introduce myself to them and say, hey, do you want to sit together? You want to grab a coffee? You want to practice together? And they're all like, oh, I want to intentionally make a difference based on my bad experiences. So I go out of my way to, to recognize and encourage new players on the tour whenever I can. For those of us that will never experience it, and you've talked about the importance of confidence in this sport, you can be technically clean, you can, you can be fine-tuned for a tournament, but when you walk to the table, that feeling of confidence and the role that it plays and, and kind of getting in the flow state or the zone, or whatever you want to call it, whatever athlete expression is used to describe everything clicking. It's relaxed intensity together, which is how a lot of athletes describe it. That's and, and- exactly right. Yeah, good. When I'm playing my best pool, when I'm in the zone, all I focus on is the job at hand at the table, but I help myself get there more often I actually have a little, um, it's like a little business card size. And what I did was I typed on a sheet of paper, all of the things that I do mentally, right? Um, Or my attitude. So it'll say, I stalk the table, you know, like a, I think it was like a panther or jaguar or something like that. It says, I stalk the table. Um, I'm decisive at every opportunity. I look forward to, I rise at any occasion, you know, so basically if they, they miss and they leave me a crappy shot, I'm not going to sit there pissed off and feel like they got lucky. I'm going to step up and be like, I'm ready. At least I'm here. Let's go. You know? And, and so I think about that because I know when I'm playing my best pool, there is no judgment. There is no past. There's only this moment and an intense, focus but also an aggressive kind of forward thinking forward attitude um at 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 everything that i'm doing you know each moment to moment it's looking at right now and giving a hundred percent effort and focus on getting the result that i want it's truly incredible that Jeanette got the results, shooting to number one so quickly, then battling to stay at the top while coping with constant pain from scoliosis, arthritis, an autoimmune disease, and surgery after surgery. I worked so hard to become number one and worked so hard to build this brand and have it all just, you know, gone, taken away so unfairly and kind of going through again and now I've had a total of 16 major surgeries um, on my back, on my neck, on my shoulder, on my leg. It's been um, a really big journey. And each time I was miserable and mad and each time I've grown from it. How much of that, Jeanette, was pushing pain out of there? We talked about the, the numerous surgeries, the numerous ailments, the constant day-to-day pain. You're trying to deal with pain in a sport where balance, precision are, are essential how do you push or how did you push the pain away and not have it become an unwanted part of your focus in those moments where you couldn't afford that? I remember one tournament, 1999, the Gentleman Jack's Dallas shootout, where on the final day, I was, um, I was waiting for my match to play um, against someone and then right as we were waiting it was like 10 minutes before we got called our match got called up and i'm standing by the tournament's director's booth and bam right through my body and it literally knocked me to the ground where i would get these spasms these back spasms and it would just the the intensity and this was before um my surgeries in 2001 and it was so bad that I couldn't even see straight. And I was embarrassed and had all these people over me and they were like calling and call the, you know, 911 and do all this other stuff. And I was like, no, 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 just give me a minute. And I, and I was explaining, no, this, this happens. And it was, it was normal. My, 
ex-husband saw it. I mean, it, it happens a lot is I go through these pains, but it hadn't happened at a tournament and I generally hit it. And so it was shocking. And I said, just, can you guys get me out of here? Cause I was embarrassed all the fans and everyone was watching. So finally um, they carry me to a bathroom and they get me a chair and I put my legs up so I can rest my back. And I remember um, my ex-husband, I said, I don't know what to do. I can't see straight. My eyes just kept tearing. And he said, this isn't worth all this. You know, it's just a tournament. Just let's go home. You've done enough for your back. And I was like, you know, one minute I'm, I'm calling him and I'm whining and crying. And then he's telling me that it's not worth it. Just quit and come home. And I, and I was like, what? I'm not quitting. <laughs> it's like, I didn't call you to tell me to quit. They're going to have to peel me off that pool table. No. Da, da, da. And he was like, well, that's what I thought you would say, but I just wanted to make sure you heard yourself say it. And he was like, if you can get down in pain to miss that ball, then you can get down to make that ball and just make every time you put your body through that, make it count, make the ball. And I remember just having them carry me up and then me being called in and I had like four minutes left on the shot clock because, you know, you only have 15 minutes before they forfeit you to the table. And I lint holding this pool cue as my cane and the other hand on the table and I walked um, and played against Lena and bending down and the pain had tears so much that I had to like windshield wipe my eyeballs and there were drops of tears on the pool table as I got down and I'm blinking and I just made ball after ball and I beat Lena Scherzvik from Norway, Gerda Hofstetter from Austria, um, Alison Fisher and then Karen Kaur in the finals to win that tournament. And it was the first and last time I ever cried at a pool match, but I literally made that last ball. And the whole time feeling embarrassed and red and worrying about what people were thinking, if I'm faking this or making, I, I had just such, I was so insecure actually, if I think about it. And, and one by one, and I, I could never have been more proud. There is no amount of prestige or money or, glory that anyone could dawn upon me than me fighting through fighting through that at every moment and and you know I've just done that for most of my career but I remember that being so hard that my legs were like jello I could hardly hold myself up because the pain it makes somehow it affects my legs I don't know I just get weak and well, that, really that is extraordinary. I've covered a lot of sports in 30 plus years. I've never heard a story like that. Tears of pain <laughs> dropping onto the pool table, but fighting yeah, yeah. through that. I, I think you are certainly entitled to feel proud about that. Pain is still her constant companion. Jeanette says that sometimes getting out of bed is a struggle. She repeats this mantra over and over. You don't need to feel strong to be strong. That's what I say, like you don't have to wake up with a big funny smile and be cheerful to everyone. You can be miserable, but sometimes the strongest thing you can do is just getting out of bed and, and to recognize that it's just a matter of continue, you know, to keep going, to keep going and keep being open. And that's just kind of the way that I've learned to get the most, the most joy out of my life is to um, always make some kind of effort to make an impact on people's lives, whether it's one or whether it's thousands, um, but also kind of just do what you can do. Do what you can do. And if you need to take a day off and just feel sorry for yourself and eat ice cream or just be pouty or you know, try not to be nasty to people and you know, if you have to just go to your room, read a book, um, but then get back up and just keep moving because sometimes it's not even just about you. It's about the people that are watching you go through your journey and they're getting strength from just seeing you, you know, knowing your story. And so that, that kind of gives me 
you know, pool skill will only get you so far, you know, and it is something that I love and I'll always love and I'll always play, but I no longer value my self-worth on my pool game, which I can say for some time, that's exactly what I thought. Even though it would not have been my, my choice to go through this, I'm so genuinely grateful. You know, I mean, just really genuinely grateful because of what I've gotten back from it, which is a lot more compassion and humanity, a more sense of, I mean, simplest self-worth. Jeanette reminds me of other all-time greats I've known. Nadal, Jordan, LeBron, always hungry to improve, never satisfied with their level of play. And if Jeanette can get relief after an electric spinal stimulator is implanted, she is plotting a comeback to finish her career on her terms. I feel like I've won the titles, so it's really not about that. It's for me personally, just like you said, you want to feel like when you won, I want to feel like I touched on my best, and I'm not sure that I even got 60% of where I feel like I could have gone Mm -hmm. had all my physical disabilities not had, you know, an impact on, on my ability to practice for any long period of time. And then having six children on top of that, you know, can kind of like take your time away also. But now a lot of them are grown. I have a, a strong support system and I, I just feel like my passion for becoming better is there. Being number one, I don't know, but what I, that's what I learned really by accomplishing it the first time. When I was number one, I was like, that was my only goal. I was going to be the, the next world champion. I was going to be number one. At first it was world champion. And I realized, well, that's just winning one tournament. No, I wanted to be ranked number one in the world. That's it. Because then you have to do it over the span of 12 months, you know, stuff like that. And then when I accomplished that, I still realized, God, I'm still terrible. You know, I still, I could still be so much better than this. And so um, since then, it's always been about just, gosh, I wonder how good I could really get. And I still feel like so much of that has not been given a fair shot. And if this spinal cord stimulator could do that, yeah. And, and I feel like I still have pride, but I'm humble enough that if I don't get back to number one, I can live with that. What I'm having trouble with is saying that I'm done improving. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I think f- for me, that's it. I, that may not be the popular. No, um, no, I understand completely. People, it's, but, it's, it's the I, process. It's, it's the journey. It's the process. It's not the yeah. title. It's not right. the prize at the end. It's what it takes to get there. I, I, I think a lot of athletes would relate to that. I do think that if I do get closer to where I think I can be, I'm already a threat, even without practicing. But with practicing and, and doing what I think I can do, I think the rest will come anyway. It's You're throwing down the gauntlet. Go. It's a little bit yeah, of throwing down the gauntlet at your competition. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Look out. Yeah. I've grown into the Black Widow name. I hated it at first because I thought, again, as I told you, very insecure and already people didn't like me. And that kind of nickname and the way I looked at the table made me ultimately so unlikable, or at least that's how I felt at the time. But now I think it just represents so many women out there today who are unafraid and unashamed to just go for it. And so, yeah, I'm all about being the Black Widow now. I'll be keeping an eye out for the Black Widow's potential comeback. I had never met Jeanette before our conversation. I knew of her, but didn't fully appreciate her story. But I can't tell you how many times I've thought of her example of resilience since that conversation. My next guest, I do know very well. Had the pleasure of working with Jay Bellis at ESPN, covering Final Fours, Selection Sundays, other college basketball stories for many, many years. Jay is as fine an analyst as there is on television in any sport, and he's one of the most important voices in college basketball. 
At Duke, he was a four-year starter, part of Mike Krzyzewski's first Final Four team, and later was an assistant under Coach K. Along the way, Jay became an expert on the topic of toughness and wrote a New York Times bestseller with that title. Jay, this will be fun. I look forward to this. You wrote a bestseller on toughness and its various forms and define what being tough is and what it isn't, which I think is also fascinating. But let's view it through toughness in 2020 terms. And millions of people are struggling, you know, searching within for strength and toughness just to get it through each day and get to better days. And sometimes just staying positive requires various forms of toughness. How do you see 2020 toughness coming into play right now? Well, Chris, I mean, first of all, in today's world, when we're dealing with COVID and so many other things that are, are really beyond our control, one of the first people I thought about with regard to the idea of toughness and, and being disciplined and approach is my wife, Wendy. And, you know, my, my wife, you, you've met her. She's, she's, uh, she's probably the last person based upon her voice. And, and she's always smiling that, that she would be this incredibly tough person but she's really one of the toughest people I've ever met. And by that, I mean, she's got her priorities completely in order. And uh, when we were, when we were mar- early in our married life, um, and you've gone through this, we, we all have, you know, you get, you get calls from friends that'll say, hey, can you come do this charity event? Or can you come do this? Or would you mind uh, uh, appearing at this thing? And, and like you, my first answer was always, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And my wife kind of sat me down one time and she said, uh, she said, I just want you to know something. You, you know, I'm really proud of, of, you know, your willingness to say yes to help your friends and people you know and your colleagues. But she said, you need to understand something, that when you say yes to other people, you're saying no to your family. And, uh, and that was a real gut punch for me because she was right. And her, her priorities were uh, and still are, our family is first. Um, we have to be where our feet are all the time and we have to be present in the moment. And, and that's really true. I think of right now, there's so many things beyond our control and there are feelings of insecurity that we all have about maybe our jobs or our lively, you know, our livelihoods, what, what we have into the future, our, our kids, whatever it may be. And my wife's thing is, no, you have to choose to be present and not to go off on a tangent to your question, Chris, but when my kids were little, and, and we, you know, we were all out trying to, you know, improve our careers and get ahead and, and all that stuff. Um, I remember my wife saying that she said, now, these babies we have are temporary, that you need to pay attention to the here and now, because you're going to really regret if you miss this. And uh, so I think about that a lot, about um, I, can, I can worry about certain things later. I need to be here now. There's nothing I can do about some of these other things. So, so what are my priorities? And then I often think along the line of priorities, uh, what Jeff Van Gundy said uh, years ago, and I, I believe he got this uh, working with Pat Riley, was your decisions reveal your priorities. That you can say what your priorities are, but if your decisions take you in another direction, it reveals that those really weren't your priorities. Thank goodness for... Um wise and tough women in our lives. Um, that's the most important thing. Toughness being stamina, endurance, discipline, resilience, sacrifice, selflessness, the kinds of things that are really put into question in times like this and, and people having to, to find within themselves a toughness that maybe can only be revealed by adversity. Yeah, and, to, and for me in my life, that, that's a, a lot what the book was about. There was so much of it not to write, hey, look how tough I've been or what I've learned about toughness. It was look at the lessons I've learned and then through my friends uh, about areas in which uh, I fell short, sort of in, in, the, in the toughness realm. And, and for me, Chris, um, like I, and I, I think I'm not alone in this, but for me, I think earlier in my life, I was a really good rationalizer and excuse maker. And if, if something didn't go my way, if I didn't perform to the level I felt uh, I should have, um, I think my first fallback was to rationalize why and, and to make, really make an excuse. And I think I became much better at everything I did when I stopped making excuses and started accepting responsibility for the result. 
And, uh, and the first, you know, the first thing was self, you know, self-evaluation. Can you, uh, are you willing to take a hard look at the, at the why of, of the result? And, and instead of worrying about success, worry about achievement. And, you know, did I achieve the goal that I had set out? And if not, why not? And, and look at it sort of that way without, without an excuse. And that was really important for me. Um, I, I think I'm much better at that now than I used to be. And, uh, and look, I mean, Steve Kerr is a, a good friend. I know you know uh, well. He, he had said something to me years ago uh, uh, sort of about his – when he turned – one of the ways he turned a corner in his basketball career – was when he, he became willing to accept the consequences that came with failing or with losing. That if he were to take a, a big shot at the end of a game, to acknowledge that, hey, I may miss, but I'm not afraid of missing. I'm willing to accept the consequences that come with missing. I'm stepping up to take this shot to make it. Uh, I wanna make it, I don't wanna miss, but I'm not afraid to miss. And that's a really big hurdle to get over, uh, I think, mentally. And when, when I was in high school, I had a, a speech and debate and drama teacher named Billy Kramer. And, uh, and he, had, he had kind of bogarted me into being in, a, in sort of this school play, this, this production we had of Lillian Hellman's Watch on the Rhine. You know, you talk about something that's way <laughs> over the head of, uh, of, of high school, 17, 18 year old high school uh, kids. But when we were going through these, what I consider pretty grueling rehearsals, if, if I made a mistake, uh, he, he really jumped on me about, listen, you don't have an opponent out here that's trying to stop you from doing what you're supposed to do on stage, from, from being there on your cue, of hitting your mark, of being present in the scene, of, of giving to your fellow actors, things like that. And I remember him saying, very, very distinctly him saying, don't, don't be your own opponent. And I, I really thought about that. I'm like, hey, when I'm playing basketball, I've got somebody who's actively trying to stop me from what I'm trying to do. Well, in the rest of my, my life, when it, whether it was that, that play or my job as a broadcaster, like, look, you know, our jobs, I, I like to think our jobs aren't easy. Yours isn't easy. Mine isn't easy. But we don't have an opponent. And, and we may have competition in our jobs. We don't have an opponent. So what excuse do we have of not being prepared of not being in the moment and of not doing our job to the best of our ability all the time. Uh, and and that, that's, that's a part of it too, of accepting that responsibility and, and really getting out of your own way and not being your own opponent. Were you a good actor after all that? I was a good actor. <laughs> I'd say my dad was a theater director and a professor. Nothing terrified me more than the idea of getting on stage and trying to perform. I never did that. I lacked the toughness to face that fear and do it. And only, much later in life, could I even stand in front of a group of people and talk. And the incentive was you leave too much money on the table if you won't go make a speech to a booster club. You, you have to learn to overcome that fear. Let me ask you this. Is, is being able to overcome those fears, is toughness born? Is it in the DNA, in your opinion, or is it developed out of necessity in people? That's a great question. I, I think in the research I did for the book, it was about 50-50, and it's, it's mostly opinion that people have, that, that some people say you're born with it, other people say that, no, you can develop it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in the camp of that, that it can be developed, that I don't think we come out of the womb, you know, uh, uh, you know tough, tough people, that you, you acquire it and learn about it. And maybe your circumstances as you're growing up are ingrained in you to be able to fight through some things. Maybe there's part of it that's, that's genetic. I don't, I'm not sure I, I, uh, I understand it completely, but I know that in, in my life, um, I, I, I learned it, that I don't think I had it when I was younger. Uh, I don't think I understood it. And, uh, and I think it was, it was sort of a, uh, an acquired thing. To the extent I have it at all, it, it was acquired. And, and I learned from other people. I was inspired. That, that's maybe the, the thing that stuck with me most is how my friends, my colleagues, my teammates really inspired me um, to, to persist, um, to have uh, uh, resilience in the way I went about things. You got it to sports. So let's, let's launch into sports toughness where people tend to think that that means predominantly a physical component. Can you take punishment? Can you endure pain? Can you suffer and still excel? But 
you write in your book a lot about mental toughness being way more important than that stuff. Yeah. And, and a lot of that I learned from my teammates that were honestly at times willing to fight through more than I was at that time and, and watching them do it and picking their brains on, on how they did it really helped me realize that I had artificial barriers, mental barriers that I put up that, that were born out of fear, honestly. And, you know, when I was, when I was in college, we used to run the mile every year for time and, and I was not built for, for the mile. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted to get better at it. My junior year, I really trained hard for it. Uh, I, 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 I ran, it was not a natural thing for me to run, <laughs> run a mile for time. And I worked my tail off and my college roommate and teammate, uh, Mark Allery, was about the same size and generally, you know, within the realm of the same type of athlete, he's a better athlete than I was, but, but at least we're in the same realm. And so I worked really hard and, and I ran like a, a 530 mile, which for me, I, that, that was like Roger Bannister breaking the four minute mile. <laughs> and, and Allery, who did not train for it at all. I mean, he played pickup ball and did all his conditioning work, but he didn't train for it like I did. Ran a 5.11. He was in his dorm uh, room before I finished. And, and I was pissed. And I, I talked to him about it. And I said, what, you know, how, how did that happen? Like, I, I worked way harder than you and look at the result. And he said something very matter-of-factly that, that, that really was, was profound. He said, uh, he said, look, like the mile is just how much pain you're willing to endure. And he was right. Like I was not willing to endure the same amount of pain in that last sort of lap and a half that he was. He was stronger in that because he was, and he said, he said, you know, think about it. Like how many times have, do people collapse from exhaustion? You really don't. The truth is you've got another gear and, and you just have, you have to be willing to find it. And, uh, and I wasn't willing to at that time. I think I got much better at it. Uh, but, but that was really helpful to me to have somebody kind of point that out that, and that was sort of the excuse making thing, but it was a fear of, of pushing yourself. Like, you know, what if I don't do it or what if I fall short? So you hold yourself back instead of, well, if I run out of gas, I run out of gas, but why would I hold myself back? And that, that was a, that was an important moment for me in, in sort of my mental approach. That's a great story. I, I think toughness within athletes and I covered tennis as well as football, as you know, and people don't think of tennis players as being that tough. But as you were talking, I was thinking about Rafael Nadal, who is physically tough, is mentally tough, still has a humility and a humanity to go with that. He's, he's not infallible. He's choked before. But the physical component, he uses the word suffer a lot. And I never really heard someone in tennis use that word. But as it is defined by him, it's just the toughness to ignore pain and just do more outlast longer than your opponent out there and be willing to put in the, the suffering. Well, and you put in the preparation. The suffering comes from the preparation you put into being that kind of shape so you can endure even more when the lights are on. And, you know, that goes, frankly, to, I think, uh, uh, the jobs that we do, job most people do, that, that your preparation, you get your confidence from your preparation, that you know you're ready to perform. But it doesn't mean that you put in that preparation that in, you're entitled to perform. You're not. You still have to go do it. And uh, I remember a, a quote from uh, uh, the great actor, Sir Lawrence Olivier, that, that the amount of preparation he put into a role, he would say uh, that, that in order to, in order to uh, you know, do this great role, you had to have the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off. But the confidence to pull it off comes from the preparation of it. And now look, digging down deep when uh, you're late in a match or late in a game, when, when you're tired, and, and all that, uh, that's, a, that's a level of toughness that I think you have to go through uh, in order to, to understand uh, and understand yourself. But, but part of it also is, you know, if you're down late, if you've had some bad, you know, bad luck, or maybe you're not performing at the level you think, it's sort of what uh, Coach K used to say to us is that, you know, having a next play mentality, the, no matter what just happened, you have to move on and flush all that and then, and then be prepared to perform in the moment. And, uh, and, you know, next play. It's always next play. Whatever happened, next play. And I think about that a lot in, in game broadcast studio. If you make a mistake or if something, uh, something isn't going the way you think, hey, man, the next play. Whatever happened, the next play is the most important. And especially as you get down, get down to the end of the game. 
And then, you know, going back to that, that friend of mine and teammate of mine, Mark Allery, who, who told me about the, you know, sort of how much pain you're willing to endure. He also had a, a thing about his mental, mental preparation. You know, when, when we were playing for Coach K, he was younger. And so we would have film sessions when maybe we'd lose a game or didn't play well. And the film sessions got into, we got beat up a little bit. And, uh, and it wasn't really pleasant, you know, when he was, uh, so... Allery had told me one time, I think it was my turn to get beat up. And I was, I was pretty mentally torn up after, after the film session. And Allery, he told me, he goes, oh, when he gets like that, I don't watch. I'm like, what do you mean you don't watch? And he goes, I'll look at my feed. I'll look at something else. He goes, if we're doing something analytical about here's the position we need to be in, here's the, what we're running, all that. He said, I'm all in. And he says, but I'm not letting anybody put anything negative in my memory bank. Like that belongs to me. And I have to draw upon that when things get difficult and nobody gets to plan anything negative in there. And I was like, man, you are a lot mentally stronger than me because uh, I was listening to all that stuff. And I, I think I, I think I need a psychiatrist to get through it. Uh, but but th that memory bank thing was was really interesting to me. Like, can you evaluate what happened without beating yourself up and, and putting yourself in a negative position going forward? You know, because I think there's a difference there in, in, in any walk of life. To, to evaluate what happened, to act positively upon it, and to not carry the negative forward so that, that it keeps you from performing at a high or higher level in, in your next outing. Yeah, that's a great point that you make at several spots in the book about how maintaining a positive attitude when it's challenging is a true example of toughness. You talked a couple times about managing fear and I thought it's interesting in, in the book you use the example of Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy, both seem soccer legends, and how Mia Hamm, as great as she was, prepared with fear, tremendous fear of failure. You don't want to play the game with fear, but part of being tough is you know, managing that and admitting that you have this fear of failure, and now how do I put myself in a position not to fail when I get there? It's fascinating, I think, for people that have never been in that, that level of, of athletics. Yeah, and I've never been at, at Julie or, or Mia's level of athletics, I know that, but no, like in, in all of your, your career, you've been around so many amazing athletes, amazing people. And, and you know, it, it, it's interesting to me, like you, you always hear the thing about, is it better to want to win or hate to lose? You know, you, you, you've heard that a bunch. Sure. And, and I hear from coaches a lot, they'll say, oh, oh, I'd, I'd rather have somebody who hates to lose. And honestly, Chris, like I'm not different with them, but just for me personally, that doesn't move me. Like I, I don't, I don't want to go into a game wanting or, or into, into anything I do wanting to avoid a negative result. I want to strive for the positive. It's kind of like we were talking about Steve Kerr before. I want to strive for the positive, but willing to accept a negative result. Like I'm willing to accept falling short. I'm willing to accept failure. And I don't mean failure in, in the sense of my career's over, but failure in the sense that I don't achieve the, the goal I had, but I'm not gonna let fear of failure stop me and, and affect me negatively. And cause like, look, nobody broke a huddle, nobody ever broke a, a huddle worth a damn saying, don't lose, you know, <laughs> one, two, three, don't lose. You know, it's always one, two, three, win. So how do you put yourself in the mindset of striving to win? Like I, I play a lot of golf and this, it's really hard for me because you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent golfer, but I'm not, I'm not as good as I want to be. And so sometimes you step up to a hole and, and, and you're thinking about, oh, there's trouble over here. There's water here. Don't hit it there. Don't do this. And I remember playing. I had, a, I had a caddy with me. He was a great guy. And I stepped up to this really hard par three. And I said, man, th th this is a hard, God, this is a hard hole. And the caddy says, not today and not for you. And then I, I was like, okay, that was the pep talk I needed because I was sitting here thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And he's like, not today, not for you. Five words. That's a pretty good pep talk. It was great. I mean, it was great. And, and it, it's almost embarrassing that I had to have somebody that was, was working with me to tell me that, that that wasn't my natu you know, natural approach. But it really snapped me back into, uh, into a mindset of, Think about the positive and, and get in your routine and think about doing your best. And, and going back to Steve Kerr. So here's another one from Kerr that, that I thought was just, I, I've carried this with me ever since he told me this story. 
you know, Steve Kerr, great shooter, one of the one of the best shooters ever in the NBA, uh, one of the best free throw shooters. And he told me there was one game he played in Houston against the Rockets where he shot the perfect free throw. Like his routine was perfect, everything in rhythm, uh, shot perfect form, perfect follow through, and uh, and it went through the went through the bucket and the net. It was just perfect. From then on, every time he took a free throw, when he was finishing his routine, he'd dribble three times, and then he would breathe out, and he would say, Houston. And it would just put himself in that mindset of when he was perfect. And, and that's, kind of what, that, that's kind of what it's about. Like, put yourself in the, in the best position to perform. And it doesn't mean you're going to shoot the perfect free throw there, but you're in a hell of a lot better position to do it if you've got the, the, the positive mindset of executing that way. I think it's great advice for anything. I, I'm certainly not claiming to be tough or that my job requires any special toughness, but I always tell young broadcasting students who want to do this, you get to a certain point where you stop thinking about making mistakes, as you say, you know, the fear of failure, and it's an evolution. And then a light bulb goes on and you suddenly begin to have fun and enjoy and you want to excel, do the best you can and the fear of failure or, or avoiding a bad show doesn't even come into it. And that was a, that's a key moment for me in sort of getting beyond trying to avoid a negative outcome and just enjoying the experience, just being present and, and thinking only about how good it could be. You know? Well, to your point on that, Chris, and then again, I'm not just blowing smoke at you. You're the most prepared person I've ever worked with. And, and from my seat, one, you made my job when I worked with you incredibly easy because you took care of everything and then set, set your partner up or partners to be at their best because you understood what they needed to accomplish and what they needed to get out. But, but your ultra preparedness from my seat allowed you to react in the moment that you weren't thinking about what you were going to say. You knew everything that was going on and were in complete control of it. And so you could pivot and react to what was being said. And, and, and frankly, you, you, your preparation allowed you to listen. And, and how, how important is that in our job or any job? Your ability to, to not just think about what you're gonna say, say and think about what's next, but to listen to what's being said that so you can react to it and, and amplify it and, and you know, make it better. And, and that's what I think you do better than anybody I've ever worked with. Well, you're very kind. I'll have to decide whether to edit these parts out later on, but I appreciate the nice comments. That you're the host is supposed to say nicer things about the guests. I know you're, you're embarrassing me here, but I, but I appreciate it. Now, your, your, your preparation goes without saying. I mean, preparation is confidence in, in broadcasting and anything in sports, certainly. But, uh, but you, you certainly continue to bring it. I want to talk about a couple other aspects of toughness and, and the idea of the opposite of tough being soft and a lot of things that are viewed as real negatives, kind of the, the humanity. And, and I think that my experience, people can be tough and also be very vulnerable at the same time. In fact, sometimes that vulnerability brings out the toughness, reveals the toughness in, in a nice way, in, in ways that people might not expect. Yes. And, and for me, uh, in, in my, not only my career, but my life, um, some of it had to do with, with letting go of the fake toughness of trying to play through an injury. And instead of being honest with uh, the doctors that were taking care of us and the trainer, I was trying to, to sort of play through something because I thought I was being tough. And what I was being was foolish and stupid. Um, that, that you can, like, you can play through some pain. That's fine. But when you're injured, you have to be honest about it so that you can get it taken care of and that you can, you can be at your best. And the other part of it, uh, you know, we've all had this with, with family. I had a family member, a very close family member that went through a, a very difficult uh, uh, bout of, of depression. And that's especially germane now in our society because of the higher rates of, of depression and anxiety, not only in younger people, but across the board with what people have to deal with now, because it's harder, it's harder now than, it, than it's ever been, I think. But one of the, one of the things that, that got my family member through it was, uh, was sort of surrendering to the fact that, that this is real and it's going to require uh, a lot of attention and there's nothing wrong with it. 
Um, just It's just like any other province, just like a, a, a bad knee or a bad back or whatever. Uh, and, and sort of admitting that, admitting that you need help and that you're willing to do what it takes and you're willing to accept help from others uh, was, was really important. And, and you know, you, like Coach K said this, and I think he said it for a variety of reasons, but he had said, you're not, nobody is tough alone. Like that doesn't exist. Nobody is tough alone. And, uh, and that, that was ex- especially true, I think, for in, in what I was talking about with my stupidity and dealing with an injury I had in college. And then uh, for the family member, um, kind of dealing with uh, a depression issue that, that, that took a tremendous amount of, of toughness and strength to, to deal with. Uh, not only on the part of my family member, but the entire family. And, and none of us were, were tough enough alone to handle it. None of us were, but, but collectively uh, we were. And, uh, and it was a, a positive and, and has been a positive result because of that. You use examples in your book of cancer patients and those who treat cancer patients. Of course, we both knew Jim Valbana, who was a very public inspirational force in this area. But you talk about a component to toughness being hope and belief. Why are those so important? That came from, from uh, Dr. Henry Friedman, who uh, is the head of the Duke Brain Tumor uh, Center. And the overwhelming majority of, of Henry's patients die. And he's the most positive person I've ever met. And that's why I consulted him on this, was I, I, wanted, I wanted to know, how do you do that? How do you remain so positive and and the people that, that have his patients and the families of his patients to a person said that Henry gave me hope. And so he, he, he told me that he felt the foundation of toughness was hope. Mm. And then he said that, that when, and he, he, you know, he used basketball as an example because he, you know, he's at Duke and he and Coach K are really good friends. And so he used sort of the Duke basketball team and program as an example. And he said, anytime you guys started a season, the number one thing you started with was hope. It was a hope that you were going to have a great year, the hope you were going to win a championship. Now, hope isn't a plan. You, you had a plan and went after it and all that stuff, but it all starts with hope. So he would have patients with, uh, with a geoblastoma brain tumor with, with a, a, an 8% chance of survival. And, and the first thing he would tell them is, is, we've got a plan, we're going to attack this. And, and he, 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 I remember him saying, Here's our plan A. And if plan A doesn't work, we're going to move right to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, we're going to move right to plan C. And said that our job, like we are making technical, technological advances every day in this field. And our job is to keep you alive long enough where our advances uh, can, can beat this. And he, he introduced me to a, a woman named Sabrina Lewandowski. And he said, you've got to meet this woman. He says, she's 5'2", little blonde woman. And he goes, I promise you, you lock her in a room with the toughest football and basketball players you've ever met. And only one of them comes out. And he goes, Sabrina's coming out. <laughs> and, and I talked to her about it. And she had a geoblastoma brain tumor. And, and she had said, she's a teacher. And she had told me that, that when she was going through that, she made a decision right away, I'm in the 8%. And when she would go for treatment, she would see people in, in the same situation that she was in that were, were near the end. And she said, I'm not proud of this, but, but it's just something I felt like I had to do. Uh, I, I couldn't look at them when I was going in, for, in and out of treatment because that wasn't me. That, that's not going to be me. And, and she, she acknowledged, and Henry did, that you know, her mindset and her attitude didn't mean that she was going to come through the other side and survive. But if she didn't have that, she would never have. And, and not only did she survive, she had a baby. I mean, she's been a, a success story. Like when, when she brought her baby into the, uh, to the, uh, the Duke Brain Tumor Center, there was, uh, of all these doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals, not one dry eye. And I'm having a hard time keeping mine dry right now, even though I know the, know the story. Um, that was, you talk about a positive influence that what, you know, what in my life is so difficult and such an obstacle that I can't deal with it with the positive attitude 
that a young woman with a geoblastoma had. Like I can't match that attitude with the tiny little molehill obstacles I have when she had that to scale. Uh, that, that was another one for me just in writing the book that I said, man, um, I, I, I may think I've, I've got a little bit of toughness in me, but it's not close to Sabrina Lewandowski. No, we've all been around far too many people that had to have that kind of toughness. You see it in kids, you see it in people of all ages. It's, um, it is inspiring. Alex Karras was a tough guy. He said, you know, toughness is in the soul and the spirit, not in the muscles. And I think that a lot of what we've talked about sort of is in line with that. You used the term earlier in the context of sports playing through an injury, but in a broader sense, because the genesis of this book was a piece he wrote on ESPN.com, an essay, fake toughness. What is fake toughness, Jay? Well, that, that, it, it, that article, I wrote an article for ESPN.com because I was watching a basketball game, kind of preparing for something coming up. And, and the analyst, you know, my role had praised a player for being tough when the player was just being a bully and, and just sort of uh, physically trying to push somebody around. Um, that, that's what kind of fake toughness is, is the, the bravado, uh, that the meaningless bravado, I would call it, um, for lack of a better way of putting it right now. Uh, the stuff that, that is showy, but doesn't really mean anything. I think that the concept of fake toughness, it just runs rampant outside the sports sphere. You said false bravado, projecting something that's not really deeply felt because of deep insecurity. And that's where I think you see so much fake toughness. You don't really have it. So you have to use a lot of bluster and bravado. And man, um, is that, is that a, another epidemic? that we've got uh, to deal with in society. I don't want to leave it there. Um, just on, on an upbeat note, just to, to pat yourself on the back, because you said you had to learn the hard way about toughness, but give yourself credit for, for something that's, that's happened maybe away from the basketball court where you, you appreciated all the things that Coach K told you. Your dad was a huge influence. You said he was the toughest guy you knew, but all the, the tough players that have been a part of teams and and broadcasters, what, what's a moment where you felt like, you know what, that's a lifetime full of absorbing lessons and being around tough people to help me through something? I think probably my dad uh, was probably the most helpful to me in, in getting me to let go of this, this kind of fear that I had. You know, when I first went to law school, uh, I, I, I really felt like I was out of place. Um, I, I just didn't know if this was the right thing that I could hack this. And, you know, I was a, an assistant basketball coach at Duke at the same time as a grad assistant. So I had a little bit on my plate that maybe I, I was too much for me, but I remember calling home once, uh, you know, like with my family, you would call home. This is back in the, I remember back in the, uh, long distance days, you know, you'd have to call at night. So you get, you know, long distance rates and all that. <laughs> and so I called, I called home. And in my family, you talk to your mom and you told your mom everything. And then at the end of the conversation, she'd hand the phone to your dad and your dad would go, yeah, how's everything going? You got enough money? All right, good, great. Talk to you later. And that was the end of it. And so this one time I had called and I was having a hard time in law school. I was at a low point. And I, I, my dad got on the phone at the end of the conversation. My mom hadn't even asked me about, about it, but he said, uh, he said, how's school? And I said, uh, it's not good, dad, I'm struggling. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And he said, what are, you, what are you talking about? And I said, everybody here seems to know this stuff already. Maybe their parents were lawyers and they know all the Latin terms. And I'm, I'm like running uphill and uh, underwater, any analogy you want. I don't, I, I'm struggling. And, and I remember him, him kind of saying, come on, man. He, he, he said, you don't, get a, you don't get a prize for knowing it now. You get a diploma for knowing it at the end like relax. Like, so all, he goes, how many lawyers are, are, are out there in the country? And I go, well, a lot. And then he goes, but you're the one that can't do it. And, and he just kind of knocked me, you know, kind of, you know, figuratively slapped me around a little bit to say, come on, like, just do the, do the work. You'll be fine. Like, like, you know, you don't, nobody's saying you have to be on the Supreme court at the end of your first year of law school. Like keep, keep, keep working, you'll be fine. And I was. And that's sort of the, the attitude I've taken in all the different things I've, I've, I've done, whether it was practicing law, whether it was broadcast, whatever it was, 
hey, I may not figure it out fastest, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep working at it and, and I'm going to figure it out. And that's been, that's been the most helpful thing. Like I'll figure it out. And, uh, and that was a really, really helpful thing my dad did for me that time. I don't think he was thinking he was helping me. He probably just wanted me to shut up, but it, it was important. That's an awesome way to express a really important lesson. There's, there's so many of them in the book. We could do this for hours. You're against multitasking. You think it's hard to be tough if you multitask. We need more single-minded focus in this world right now. And I think that's, that's a well-put uh, point in the book as well. But, but your, your mom and dad did their job. Wendy does her job. Your coaches, your teammates. Uh, and we, we thank them for, for giving you this wisdom. And, and thank you for sharing some of the wisdom on toughness, Jay. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. It's an honor to be with you as always. If you don't already, I'd invite you to follow Jay Billis on Twitter, at Jay Billis, as about 1.9 million people already do. He is insightful and thoughtful and also very funny. Grateful to both Jeanette Lee and Jay Billis. They have very different backgrounds. They come at our topic here of True Grit differently, but I think both offered good ideas good tools that you can use. So I hope you found it entertaining and also useful. I appreciate it if you'd offer us feedback through ratings and reviews. Those are important for any podcast and also invite you to subscribe. We have new episodes that come out about every other week. Thanks to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster and producer, Jason Weichelt. I'll talk to you soon.